Hello, and welcome back to Oral Valley Catholic. This is Father John Arnold. Woody Allen's famous for a lot of things, uh, but one of his famous quotes is, Life is full of misery, loneliness, and suffering. It's all over much too soon. So think about that, because it picks up that there's a beauty in life. There's a joy and a pleasure in life. You know, the great joys of marriage and family and a successful career, the beauty of nature, uh, the seaside. There's just so much about life that's wonderful. But there's also this grinding war in Ukraine. There's the threat of uh, to social stability in our own country as we look at what may be the end of Roe versus Wade and extremists, at least on one side of the issue, seem to act out in bizarre ways. So when you think about all of this, this is what life is. You know, it's interesting because the readings during Easter are really about life. If you go through all the Sundays of Easter, there are three kinds of readings. The first is either about Jesus' resurrection or Jesus' divinity and his intentionality for the human race. So that'll always be the gospel. The second is the Acts of the Apostles. We read the Acts of the Apostles both on the Sundays of the Easter season and at all the weekday masses. Because before St. Luke, who authors both the Gospel of Luke and Acts of the Apostles, the story of Jesus is followed by the continuity of the ministry of the church up to the present day. And I talked a little bit last week about the Acts of the Apostles and how complicated a world that the first apostles went out into, not just the, just how complicated the Jewish community was in Second Temple Judaism, but also just the mythic world and the various gods that they had to uh, whose followers they had to encounter and evangelize. But the third kind of reading besides the gospel readings, the Acts of the Apostles, is the readings always from the book of Revelation about the world to come. And in this reading from the book of Revelation, which we're going to focus on, it's about a new heaven and a new earth and a new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven. So here's the reading from the book of Revelation. Then I, John, saw a new heaven and a new earth. The former heaven and that former earth had passed away and the sea was no more. I also saw the holy city, a new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, God's dwelling is with the human race. He, he will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will always be with them as their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death or mourning, wailing or pain, for the old order has passed away. And the one who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You know, have you ever been in a church that has a baldacchini over the altar? It's four pillars and it looks like a, a um, an umbrella or a, uh, like an outdoor uh, setting that you could do something under. Well, that's exactly what it is. That replicates the kind of veil, the kind of umbrella that would be put over a Jewish couple at their wedding. Because what happens at the altar when the Eucharist is consecrated, it's 
the wedding feast of the Lamb, just as it says here, is, I saw a new Jerusalem coming down of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. So imagine you're in a church that has one of those baldachinis, I think they're called hoopas, um, that you come up to where the divine bridegroom comes down and you as the church come up. And uh, this wedding is consummated in the cross and the gift of the Eucharist. But that's not all that's in this reading from uh, from the book of Revelation. There's the new heaven and the new earth. And you might recall that from the gospel of Matthew and in Mark, but in Matthew in chapter 24, Jesus speaks about the end of the world using the very same imagery. He says, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. That's in Matthew chapter 24, verse 35. And so this world, we just know from astronomy, uh, and science uh, can't last. It's going to burn out. There will be an end to the cosmos. But the book of Revelation, and it means, apocalypse means to reveal, the book of the apocalypse. We think about apocalyptic as this, this uh, violent end time full of uh, cataclysms. Well, okay, and that's probably how, how it'll happen. But apocalypse means to reveal. That's why we say it's the book of Revelation. It reveals that the end of this world is not the end of creation. Because remember how this reading ends for the book of Revelation. Behold, the old one says from the throne, I make all things new. So a new world replaces this one. And then, if you remember from the reading, it said, Behold, the dwelling of God is with man. That's Revelations 21. So to dwell amongst men, to remember, to tabernacle amongst us. That's what the Greek word is. And so we have a tabernacle in the church at St. Mark's or at any church where God is present amongst us in the reserved Eucharist. But the whole idea goes back to the tent dwelling that was with Moses and the people in um, the book of Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy as they come out of the desert into the, uh, the land of Israel. And so for God to dwell amongst us, they always point out when the new uh, Jerusalem comes down, and if you read the description of the new Jerusalem, it's got 12 gates because there's 12 apostles. There's 12 uh, foundation stones or levels of foundation. Again, because of the 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 uh, disciples. And the Lamb dwells there with his people. But the one thing that's missing is that there isn't a temple or a church there because the whole place is a church. So the end of time is about a transfiguration of this world into the world that comes. And so exactly what it's going to look like because uh, where God dwells everywhere and the whole world is basically God's temple. Um, well, St. Paul describes it in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 when he says, What no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man conceived, what God has prepared for those who love him. Because it will be a physical place, a glorified physicality, like our bodies will be glorified. Um, but we'll be gendered, we'll recognize each other, um, we'll be fully human. 
So the resurrection of Jesus is really nothing less than the beginning of a whole new created universe, this new creation. And just as Christ's body was put to death on the cross, then raised up and transfigured and changed, because that's one of the the uh, consistencies in the story of the gospel is that people don't recognize Jesus, but he eats bread and fish with them. You can put your finger into his hands and into his side. So it is a physicality, it's not a ghost. It's not like Plato thought, which was this disembodied existence where you no longer have the problems of the body. It's our soul and our bodies are brought up to a new pitch of reality to exist in God and in the new Jerusalem. So when this universe passes away, because it is a dying place, um, it doesn't go into non-existence, but it is transfigured and changed to share the glorious state where Christ will fulfill his words, behold, I make all things new. So it's really important, it seems to me, in, your, in each of our lives, that we understand who we are, what our situation in life is, and what we're supposed to do. So at this point in our lives, we are strung out between the world as it was before the crucifixion and the world as it is after the crucifixion. It's like these two worlds overlapping, the old and the new creation. And in the book of Revelation, especially in the story of the New Jerusalem, there's a duality there that St. Augustine captures in his great book uh, of theology, The City of God, where he says that the city of God and the city of man are intertwined in this world and they cannot be separated. So I wanna take a moment, I wanna spend a little more time on the book of Revelation and this on this whole understanding of the new Jerusalem and how John, who wrote the book of Revelation, understood this coexistence of the city of man and the city of God as St. Augustine understood it. So I'll be back in a moment. So let's take a moment and examine this whole understanding of the New Jerusalem and why St. Augustine in his city of God sees this image of the city of God and the city of man. It's because between chapter 7 uh, and following in the book of Revelation, the main figures that are discussed are, well, this new Jerusalem is coming down from heaven, but also the whore of Babylon. And so Babylon, as you know, has this very problematic background with the Jewish people because uh, they were Gentiles, um, they worshiped they had pagan gods, they were polytheistic, that they defeated Jerusalem, this sense that God had failed them and followed them into captivity in Babylon, uh, and that they were brought back to Jerusalem. And if you're much aware of all of the kind of polemics that uh, Protestants directed towards the Catholic Church, you know that uh, the, they, what they did was they focused on this reading of chapter 17 of Revelation, and then as an allegorical reading uh, that they compared uh, to the, uh, the papacy in the Roman Catholic Church in the years following Martin Luther. So 
Just to give you a taste of what that polemic was like, in chapter 17, talking about Babylon the Great, here's where the whore of Babylon uh, is presented. Then one of the seven angels who were holding the seven bowls came and said to me, Come here and I will show you the judgment on the great harlot who lives near the many waters. And the kings of the earth have had intercourse with her, and the inhabitants of the earth became drunk on the wine of her harlotry. Then he carried me away in spirit to a deserted place where I saw a woman seated on a scarlet beast that was covered with blasphemous names with seven heads and ten horns. The women were wearing purple and scarlet and adorned with gold, precious stones and pearls. She held in her hand a gold cup that was filled with the abominable and sordid deeds of her harlotry. And on her forehead was written a name, which is a mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and of the abomination of the earth. And then it goes on later in verses 8 and 9 to uh, describe the harlot. The beast that you saw existed once, but now exists no longer. And the beast uh, was really from chapter, I think, chapter 7. And I'll talk about that in a little bit. But the beast will hate the harlot, it says uh, in this verse. The beast that you saw existed, but now exists no longer. It will come up from the abyss and is headed for destruction. The inhabitants of the earth whose names have not been written in the book of life when the foundation of the world should be amazed when they see the beast because it existed once but exists no longer and yet it will come again. Here is a clue for one who has wisdom. The seven heads represent seven hills upon which the woman sits. They, all represent, they also represent seven kings. And so Bible scholars would say it's the seven hills of Rome and the seven Caesars. But the the beast has these ten horns, and the ten horns that you saw in the beast will hate the harlot. This is verse 16. They'll leave her desolate and naked. They'll eat her flesh and consume her with fire. A delightful story. But this is the book of Revelation. And so for the Protestants, since it's the seven cities, I mean the seven hills, well then in the 16th century, that's the Roman Catholic Church. Um, and but it's not what they were thinking of in the first century when this was written. They were thinking of Rome, but they were thinking of the persecution um, by, by the emperors. And so, for instance, in um, uh, chapter 13, verse 18 of Book of Revelation, uh, it describes the beast that's coming back. Wisdom is needed here. One who understands can calculate the number of the beast for it's a number that stands for a person. His number is 666. So it's chapter 13 where that 666 comes from. But as you know, the Romans used letters. They didn't use Arabic numerals like we did. They used letters. Why they had trouble with upper mathematics, I suspect. Um, but that if you look at the letters as it's transliterated, it spells the name Nero. And Nero, as you know, is one of the great persecutors of the church, Suetonius, a Roman, uh, emperor, a Roman historian who lived 50 or about 60 years after Nero, said that he had covered Christians in wax and lit them up to illuminate his garden. So you can understand why Christians were afraid of him. And it's interesting that others were afraid of him because he had this maniacal um, personality, although modern historians say that's all just made up. He was really a nice guy. 
you know, it's where we are with revisionist history is a, it's it's its own podcast. But that the idea that they thought Nero had escaped out to the eastern end of the empire and was going to, in some versions, come back with the Parthians, who were the great enemies of of the Romans. But it wasn't to pass. He was actually, Nero was actually killed by the Praetorian Guard. But this is woven into this book of Revelation story. But this is this is the key to it, is the beast hates the whore. Uh, they're not allies. And so the beast actually destroys the whore. So, okay, this is the book of Revelation. But where this whole idea of the book of Rev, uh, book, the whore of Babylon come from, that's what the key point is. And so you go back to the Old Testament, because the Old Testament is always the backdrop for the story of the New Testament. So if you go to Isaiah, no, let's start with Hosea. Hosea is a prophet. He's a prophet to the uh, northern ten tribes prior to the fall of the northern kingdom of Israel as opposed to the kingdom of Judah in the south. The kingdom of Israel fell to the Assyrians uh, 800 plus years before Jesus was even born. But in Hosea chapters 1 and chapters 4, chapter 1, uh, 1 verse 2, chapter 4, verse 11, Hosea is, con- is comparing Israel, this is the northern tribe, to a prostitute. In fact, in the story of Hosea, he marries a prostitute. He has two children by her that he gives horrible names to. But here's what he says in uh, Hosea 1, chapter 2, which is basically repeated in chapter 4. When the Lord began to speak with Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go get for yourself a woman of prostitution and children of prostitution, for the land prostitutes itself, turning away from the Lord. So while Israel and Judah are both in existence, Hosea refers to the land of Israel as a prostitute. And so his prophetic stance is to act out the prostitution because God told him to marry a prostitute and have children with her. Several hundred years later, after the destruction of the northern ten tribes, Isaiah, who is a prophet to Judah before the fall of, to Babylon, refers this same prophetic stance toward the city of Jerusalem. And it's if you want to look at it, it's in uh, chapter 1, verse 21 of the book of Isaiah. How she's become a prostitute, the faithful city, so upright. Justice used to lodge within her, but now murderers. And so the idea of comparing the city of Jerusalem to a prostitute goes all the way back to the book of Isaiah and to the land of Israel in the book of Hosea. So why would you conclude that this reading of the book of Revelation is much more rational and true to the text than the polemics of Protestant Christianity following the Reformation? And if you're alert, Um, to this very day. And so here's what I want to do is go through and compare what the book of Revelation says about Babylon. This is the the city of man and the new Jerusalem, the city of God. So chapter 16, verse 17, Babylon equals the old Jerusalem. The seventh chalice destruction of Babylon. And so in the new Jerusalem, which is what the reading was about this Sunday, 
the final seventh vision because it's always seven plagues, seven chalices, seven visions because there's seven days of the week and that's perfection. And so in the final seventh vision, it's the descent of the new Jerusalem. So the seventh chalice is the destruction of Babylon. The seventh vision is the destruction of the new Jerusalem. So it's talking about not the city of Jerusalem per se, but the world that's going to be destroyed at the end. And then the next parallelism between Babylon and the New Jerusalem, the city of man and the city of God, is in uh, verse 17, uh, no, chapter 17, verse 1. Then one of the seven angels who had had the seven bowls came and said to me, and then in chapter 21, about the new Jerusalem. Then came one of the seven angels, where the seven bowls full of the seven plagues, and spoke to me. One's about the destruction of Babylon, the other's about the new Jerusalem. So chapter 17, verse 1, the great harlot. But chapter 21, verse 9, also in 17, the bride, the wife of the lamb, descending out of heaven. That's the, the, uh, the uh, reading for today, comparing uh, or contrasting the, the whore of Babylon with the, the bride of Christ. And then chapter 17, the whore of Babylon. And he carried me away in the spirit, chapter 21 again. And in the spirit, he carried me away. You see, it's the same story. It tracks each other. Then again in chapter 17 about the whore of Babylon. I saw a woman arrayed in purple and scarlet bedecked with gold and jewels and pearls. And these are supposed to be Catholic priests. But in chapter 21, what um, the visionary compares the bride to is having the glory of God, her radiance like a most rare jewel, like jasper, clear as crystal. And then um, about the whore of Babylon again, chapter 17, on her forehead was written a name of mystery, Babylon the Great, mother of harlots. But chapter 21 about the new Jerusalem. On the gates, the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. And then back to the whore of Babylon, chapter 18. It became a dwelling place of demons. But back to the new Jerusalem, chapter 21. Behold, the dwelling of God is with men. It's not demons there. God is dwelling there. And then back to the old Babylon, chapter 21. Mother of harlots and earth's abomination or falsehood. Chapter 21 about the new Jerusalem. Nothing unclean shall enter it, not anyone who practices abomination. Back to the city of man, the old Babylon. Those whose names are not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will marvel to behold the beast. That's chapter 17. Chapter 21, only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life shall enter. So you can see it's this point-by-point -point comparison between the old city of man, the whore of Babylon, and the city of God coming down out of heaven. And this was the basis for St. Augustine's book, The City of God, where he said in his book, and it's a long book, but well worth the read, is that the city of man and the city of God have always been entwined with each other. There have always been prophets or kings or holy men and women uh, in the Old Testament that were part of the city of God. But there's also been wicked people like Jezebel and Ahab who are part of the Babylon, the city of man. And it continues to the present day, light mixed with dark, evil amidst the good. At the Last Supper, it's Judas amongst the 12 apostles. 
This is the reality being uh, discussed in the book of Revelation. It's not an anti-Catholic book uh, unless it's just in twisted minds trying to use the Bible to uh, beat up other people. For us, however, it's a tutorial about the nature of our existence, the presence of the good in the world, but also the suffering that each of us endure. Let's wrap this all up together as we turn to a discussion of the gospel today and the Acts of the Apostles. So today in the Gospel of John, it's the farewell discourse just before Jesus is arrested and crucified. And he gives what you might think of as what the 11th commandment, one commandment I give you, he says, little children, I'm with you for a little while. A new commandment I give you, that you love one another as I have loved you. You know, think of the phrase just love, because you can think about it in two ways. The first is, Loving justice, loving other people in justice is what chaste love is. A just love is a love that's not concerned with self-gratification, but the good of others. And so the erotic uh, is about self-gratification. It's about the excitement and passion of a physical kind of love. What Jesus is talking about is not romantic love, not sensual love, but just love, loving others, just for the sake of the other. And what does that lead to something that's just love? It's not sex, it's not arrows, it's just love of another person. It's the recognition that the world does not revolve around me. I think for those who will engage uh, faithfully and passionately with being a celibate priest, you can experience this kind of love. But it's also the love that a husband and a wife, a boyfriend and a girlfriend can experience if they're concerned about being just in love so that they can experience just love and not just eros and romance. That has all of its place in male and female relationships, but really subject to loving in a just way. But how do you get there? Because you're a disciple. And so disciples are not teachers, disciples are learners. So when we think of the moral life, you have to think of yourself as someone who's learning all the time. It's when you talk down your nose to other people that we learn for the priest too, to pretend that somehow we're the master. We're all studying at the feet of the master. We're all disciples. So we're all experiencing moral growth throughout our life. But disciples are something more than believers. You see, Satan is a believer. He knows what God uh, says is true. He just doesn't do anything about it. He opposes it. But uh, not the disciple. The disciple believes, and the disciple figures out, according to their situation in life, uh, what it is they're supposed to do about it. A virtuous man, a virtuous woman, understands who they are, both the light and the dark in themselves. They understand their situation in life, the demands that are being made upon them, the just demands by others in love. And they understand what Jesus' commandment is about love, and then they try to do something about it to both temper their own passions and emotions, but also to think about the good of the other. And so think about this in terms of the Acts of the Apostles, because when they went out and preached, they were all over the place. And this reading from the Acts of the Apostles this week, it just continues this travelogue from Paul and Barnabas that we heard about last week. And so they're in Lystra. 
then they're in Iconium, then they're in Antioch, then they leave Antioch to go to Pisidia, they leave Pisidia to go to Pamphylia, they leave Pamphylia to go to Perga, they leave Perga to go to Italia, and then they go back to Antioch, and then when they're in Antioch, they gather with the community of faith. What's evangelization? Well, the evangelization takes you to a lot of places with a lot of people who believe a lot of things that are not what we believe. Remember last week in, uh, in my podcast, I talked about the pagan gods just from Perga, Antioch, and Iconium. Just, wow, how confusing. And on top of that, it's this broken Judaism that has this temple that's on the verge of being destroyed. But even it's, it's almost like they're going through the motions as they sprinkle the blood in that empty um, holy of holies. Evangelization is fundamentally that we tell the story of Israel and Jesus. This is what evangelization is. But it can't be evangelization without a just love. And a just love is a love that sees other people as other people. Not someone to argue into submission, not someone to beat over the head with a Bible, not someone to threaten. You just tell the story. And it's the Holy Spirit that has the burden of conversion. So if you think about it, how do we enter the kingdom of God? Everybody wants to go to heaven. Everybody wants an afterlife that is happy. Not possible without a just love. You want to see what a just love, love looks like? Contemplate the crucifixion. You want to understand what a just love feels like? Think about suffering out of your love for others. You know, some people are spiritual but not religious, and I wonder if that is an equation that makes no demands on the believer. But for the Christian, oh, there are demands. Um, miracles, mysticism, these all have their place. But nothing about our evangelization works until we think about whether or not we love each other uh, justly. A lifetime of love is hard to fake. Miracles, you can fake, but a lifetime of love is authentic. Poor Woody Allen. Yeah, love has, uh, life has suffering in it, but it's like he's got it upside down. Um, life does have brutality, and life does have suffering in it, but the beauty in it is our capacity for love of neighbor and love of God. And so, God bless you. Until next week on Oro Valley Catholic.